All right, why don't you go ahead and grab a seat if you would? Love it. Thanks be to God. Yeah, just like at home. Sit down whenever you'd like. Be quiet when you choose. What a blessing to have a full house. It was the first service as well, and so thankful. Um, it gets crowded during the Lord's Supper with the aisles, and I was going to take about 15, 20 chairs out this week and just set them up in the front room, but I'm glad I didn't. Um, so this is great that we can all be in here together. So here we come to a very, very important passage in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount for a good while. And so if you have your Bible, I ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. And here's the question that Jesus wants us to wrestle with and poses to us this morning. The question is this, how does the kingdom of heaven relate to things and treasures and money? That's the question. I could ask it this way. If the kingdom of heaven has come down to earth in Jesus to this place of dirt and objects and possessions and currencies, how does it affect that? This is a message that I think is incredibly personal. That was the point of the email I sent you all this week. If you don't get those emails, you can sign up out front, kind of give a thought to you all to pray through before we study the text together. But this is inherently personal because we get to have as our relationship the word of God through Jesus himself telling us that you and I in our hearts get to have a conversation about money. The things that are often not discussed. And so I pray God takes us to personal places in our hearts. Would you stand with me and let's hear our Lord talk to us. Matthew chapter 5 verse 19. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or mammon. This is the word of the Lord. Father, would you help us in this moment to deeply navigate the things that you've put in front of us? Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts that you would put this text over our lives and give us pause to stop and think and ask that you'd make our view of treasures and money and stuff and possessions consistent with how we ought view them as your provision to steward and not as an alternative God to you. Give us help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So each week, the first thing that we do in preparing to preach is try to understand what is the structure of the passage that I'll be teaching, or it could be one of the other leaders here. What's the structure? Because the structure of a text reveals the emphasis. 
We've talked about that when, when we preach through narrative. We do a plot analysis and say, well, kind of what's the conflict? What's the climax? What's the tension that's resolved? We go through all that. But as I was looking at this this week, it's pretty obvious by the way your English Bible divides it. There's three sections to what we just read. Verse 19 to 21, verse 22 and 23, and then verse 24. And so here's the question. How do they fit together? Is And I kind of sketched this out on the top of your outline there. Is Is it the... Option A, the left column there, is there one point with kind of two subpoints, Or in the middle there, is it kind of three parallel points or maybe even points that just build on each other and kind of descending, if you will, into depth? Or thirdly, and this is where I'm going to land, does Jesus say really the same main point in verses 19 to 21 and he says it again differently in verse 24? And then in the middle, verse 22 and 23, when he looks like he changes the subject and starts talking about eyes and what we look at, I'll call it a correlating point or a sub point or honestly, it's just a warning. If what he says in the first and last part of this text is true, then we need to heed the warning of what is given to us in the middle. And so that's how we're going to do that because structure reveals emphasis. So I would say the emphasis of this passage for us is it's one thing that comes with a warning. I wrote it out for you in your insert. Let me read it. We must treasure in our hearts only the eternal things of the kingdom of heaven, being devoted only to serving and worshiping God the Father. So we must be wise about what we look at with our eyes. For our eyes are the window to our soul. Or you could say the eyes are the window out of which our soul looks at the world that can wreak havoc on our hearts and what we treasure as well as what we worship. Let me give an example. How often do you look at your finances? Maybe I could ask it this way. Over the last year, how fixated has your heart been on the fragility of the stock market as a whole? Did a little research this week. There was an article that Forbes put out, mostly about tech stocks, but it had some good summary information about the stock market in general and what actually happened in 2022. Tech stocks in 22 fell by more than 30%. Both the Dow Jones and the NASDAQ, tech-focused indexes, one was down 35%, the other was down 33%. The stock market in general did better, but not good. The stock market itself fell around 20%. We all know this. It was very uncertain. It still is, but so many uncertain conditions during 2022. Higher interest rates, high inflation. I had lunch this week with one of our church's financial advisors, and I said, you might be embarrassed of me or proud of me during the sermon introduction, I don't know. He said, Jim, do you realize 22 was a triple bear market? First time it's happened in 72 years. A triple bear market means that stocks and bonds and cash all fell by more than 20% from their recent market highs. All in the same year. Hasn't happened in 72 years. The NASDAQ had four quarters straight of dropping values. Meta, Tesla lost two-thirds of their value. Amazon lost half of its value. IPO'd companies, businesses that had their initial public offering, fell by, on average, 80% or they went out of business. In crypto, Bitcoin and Ether lost 60% of their value. 
Coinbase, which is the only one that has shares on uh, the stock market, had their shares declined by 86%. Here's how the Forbes article ended. Ready for this? There was this heading, and it said, what this means for investors now, which I will not tell you because that is not the point of our time in the Word. Here's my point. Do you or I fear or minimally fixate on these things? Maybe it's not your investment portfolio. Maybe it's not the market. Maybe it's how much is in your bank account. The kind of car you do drive or want to drive. The house you do live in or wish you could live in. The kind of shoes you wear. Where you grocery shop and who sees you there. How much debt you have, how you'll pay it off, and how much more you can sustain if you really need to to get what you really want. As I shared a couple weeks ago, social media is a constant discussion in our house. And the thing that we're talking about at different times is it's not just the risk of lewd images and things like that. But maybe you've seen these reels where a random person is walked up to on the street and the interviewer says, how much is in your bank account? And uh, whether it's a college kid or a professional, someone that appears to be retired, they tell what's in their bank account, just provoking covetousness and struggle in God's providence. And I kid you not, this week in my living room, when I should have been watching the movie we were watching, instead I checked some Facebook you know, feed, I see that question asked of a man I know who's, I don't know what city he was in, couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my gosh. Who then revealed his seven-figure annual income and gave financial advice. Do you know this struggle? An ad keeps popping up on any sort of internet thing I'm connected to that says this. Steps everyone in their 40s needs to make now for their retirement. I mean, it's like there's an algorithm or something that tells who's on the other end of this. Turned 45 a few weeks ago, and as a family, we are going through a season. We're double-checking our expenses just to make sure that we are wise and discerning. I've sought financial counsel from some of you and just realized that while I've tried to be wise, now's the time if I'm going to make some changes and some decisions that will affect 20 years from now. I need to be super shrewd about it. Depending on the day, I can fixate on these things in fear. Or I think I can actually navigate them with prayerful faith. But which is it going to be? Depends on the day and depends on what my eyes are looking at if I drive by a house or someone else's stuff and just wonder how far away that could be. That's very personal to share. But that's why I told you this week we're going to have a personal conversation. So no matter your financial situation, no matter your possessions, your cash flow, Ready for this? No matter your net worth, which is a horrible description of any human being created in the image of God. If we are in the kingdom of heaven that has come down to earth in Jesus, we need to have some, do some serious self-examination when it comes to stuff and, mon and money. It's very personal. Here's the question I've been asking myself this week. Will this text and this sermon be harder to receive by those who do not have much money or possessions and have so much craving? Or will this be more challenging to those who, in God's providence, have much? 
Like, where's the challenge going to intersect life? It's very personal. I think of Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, where it's not a proverb of Solomon, by the way, interestingly enough. But the author says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and I deny you, and I say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and I steal and profane the name of my God. It's very personal. So I've given you an outline with some questions that I think can help us navigate this. The first question from the first few verses is, what is your treasure and where is your heart? Jesus commands, he says, do not lay up or store up for yourselves treasures on earth because this life, this place is a place where moth and rust destroy. Translation, passive harm comes to things of value. It's also a place where thieves can break in and steal. Active harm. Think with me about Jesus' original audience who didn't have places of dry storage the way we have. They put their little amount of clothing that they might have, maybe it's just the extra set of clothes, and wherever they store it, they need to be very, very aware. It's very likely moths are eating it. Or what about the fact that they didn't have and don't have the kinds of security that we boast in today? A thief could break in and steal quite easily. Let's, let's then lay this over top of our life. Think about your closets and what is in, what, what's in them. Think of your attic. Our houses, our cars, our toys, our furnishings, our retirement plans. That's the stuff we should think about. And let this word come to bear. All things we possess can suffer passive harm. Right? You've got entropy, deterioration, depreciation, rot. All these things just... Make things fall apart. If you know anything about Corey in my last years of life, water can destroy lots of things. How about active harm, for example? Theft. We've got two college children that aren't here, and so I'm often checking expenses just to see what went where and is everybody doing okay and are they being wise. Twice in the last month, I've had to contact our bank about fraud. Right? Active harm, passive harm. Now, Jesus does not condemn wise financial planning. So I want you to hear this part of our message before we dig in. The Bible is not against savings. It's not against financial planning. And it's not against having ownership of personal property. In fact, I would say the opposite. The Bible gives those freedoms and those rights before God. But Dan Doriani says this. He says, the Bible praises those who work to prepare for winter or the lean season. Think of Joseph. Think of many of the Proverbs. Preparing for the lean season. Parents should save for their children. That's 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14. Actually, Paul's, here's what he says. He says, children aren't obligated to save for their parents. Parents are obligated to save for their children. Did you know that that's the word the text says? Paul uses the word obligated. So the Bible expects us to be wise with our finances the text we read earlier, 1 Timothy 6, 17, the Bible expects us not to pile up things for our own use, but to enjoy all the riches that God has provided. But here's what Doriani says. Jesus does ban the godless, selfish accumulation of goods, heaping up possessions and savings beyond our ability to enjoy them, to spend them, or to share them. So Jesus commends not laying up things on earth, but he says lay up treasures in heaven where no passive or active harm will impact that investment. 
Job knew this, didn't he? And when Job had all the suffering that lost so much of his life, Job said this, Naked I came from my mother's womb without possessions, and naked I will return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the Bible says that through all this, Job did not sin. Jesus is saying very clearly to us that the only investment that will never depreciate, the only investment that will always compound is investment in his kingdom. But it's all rather abstract, in my opinion. So what would this look like? This might be the biggest takeaway for you. I won't spend much time on it. What is it to invest in this life in the eternal kingdom of Jesus? Let me just pose three things to you. Very simple. It is to give ourselves to God's worship, God's will, and God's people. I'm going to use that as just sort of more pragmatic connections. This is the Lord's world, every square inch of it. There is one God, one creator, every item in it, every part of it, every hour in it. So if we give ourselves to the worship of our creator and redeemer, that is an eternal investment for that's the only thing we will keep doing for all eternity. So let me ask you, does your life orbit around worshiping God? When you're here, it's a Lord's day. I'm thankful for that. Individually, familially, corporately, is worship the thing you give yourself most to, for it is the thing that you will do forever if you have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus for the glory and worship of God. Do you view all of your resources and possessions as God's resources entrusted to you for you to use them for his glory and for the good of others? I think of 1 Corinthians 29, excuse me, 1 Chronicles 29, where the temple is going to be built. And I love the way it's described. David's going to give from his treasury to build the temple. And then we read this. The people all rejoice because they'd given willingly. Notice what, how it says that. They were, they were so giddy because they enjoyed giving. 1 Chronicles 29. For with their whole heart they had offered to the Lord. Do you know that experience? I don't know who gives what in tithes and offerings in this local body. Thankfully, I don't know that. But I do know that it is often not a practice of faith and worship to give our resources to the God who owns them all, whether it's 10% or more, just to say it's not mine. God's worship, second of all, God's will. Where do we find God's will? But in God's law. Right? And if I will give myself in my life to know the God who gave the law, and then when I miss the mark of keeping his law, I will repent and believe that his righteousness has come in Jesus. That means I get to commune with the God I'll worship forever. I am investing in the kingdom by knowing his law better for obedience as well as in repentance. See how they fit together. But think of King David, Psalm 119. He says this, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I give my time to know your word. And then he says, blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me more of your law. With my lips, I'll declare all the rules of your mouth in the way of your testimonies. I will delight as much as in all riches. That's what David says. David says, I give myself to know God's law as much, if not more, than I give to the accumulation of my wealth in this life. And then he says, I will meditate on your precepts. I'll fix my eyes on your ways. God's worship, God's law, and then thirdly, God's people. Do you live your life and do I live my life to generously give of time, skills, 
and resources to those who are walking in conformity to God's law and God's worship for his kingdom's sake. Do you delight to do that? If we do that with other believers, what's that called? Discipleship. To walk with another and share life and enable health to happen. What do we call it when we do that with those who are inching their way toward confessing faith in Jesus? It's called evangelism. Do you give yourself toward the evangelism and discipleship of those who you would hope and pray for would be God's obedient people? When I took the four years of my life to when I was not in pastoral ministry and I was doing nonprofit leadership, one of the things I wasn't prepared for, but I also enjoyed the most, was engaging very wealthy Christian philanthropists. I had never been prepared to talk to someone who could, if they wanted, give 500000 to more than a million and to sit across from them and say, this is our mission, this is what we do. And to see the difference of a believer who said, it's not mine anyway, and I just want you to keep it quiet, and I want to see God use it, and I don't want any credit, is an, was an amazing thing to experience. It was also very different than those who said, no, I'm sorry, you, don't, you, you wouldn't build a building and put our name on it? Well, no, we don't want money for us to build a building with your name on it. We want money so people have dry houses and they can put a roof on their house. And no, no, we're not doing that kind of brick and mortar work. Now, I'm not implying that there is not a place for a Christian investor to have their name on a building, but it was shocking to me. I was unprepared for that experience of somebody who says, it's not mine. And I would love to use it for the glory of God. Okay. God's worship, God's law, God's people. Let's put that on top of our life. Do you have a heart that fixates on those things? Because Jesus gives the principle in verse 23, and here's the principle. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So the question is, where's your heart? Look at what you treasure. That's where your heart is. It's as simple as that. If your heart is fixating on evaluating life based on things that fade away, that lose their value, that are not ultimate, then you're not walking in conformity to the glory and the offer of blessing in the kingdom of Jesus. Or is your heart most fixated on the worship of God, the word of God, and the people of God? Where your heart is, there your treasure is. And where your treasure is there, your heart is. Reminds me of Matthew 13 when Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And a man found the treasure, covered it up. Then in joy, he goes and he sells everything he has just so he can have the treasure in the middle of the field. That investment was worth him getting rid of everything. Kingdom is to be that kind of an investment for us. Now let's jump to verse 24, the third point. If the kingdom of God is to be the treasure that it is in our hearts, then the, Jesus is clear there's no place for a divided heart. One of my favorite verses, you've maybe heard me quote, is Psalm 8611. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to feel your name. Fear your name. The, the Hebrew there for unite my heart is give me an undivided heart. I don't want to have a divided heart. And here Jesus is saying, actually, you can't. There's no such thing as a divided heart. You either worship God or you worship another God. That is no God at all. Achan tried to have a divided heart. You remember Achan in Joshua 6 and 7? He took the wealth and the spoils from the victory of God's battle. He hid them under his tent. He was destroyed. 
In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, they tried. They sold a big property and they made sure the leadership of the church knew that they were bringing all the value of that sale to give to God, but they weren't. They were only giving part of it and they were keeping the rest for themselves and they were destroyed and judged by God. It's no wonder Jesus told the rich young ruler, if you want to enter my kingdom, then go sell all that you have and then come back. It's no wonder that Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for through this craving some have wandered away from the faith. Jesus says it like this, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot worship God and mammon. Consider what Jesus does in verse 24. He doesn't use the word heart again, but do you see what he's using? He's using, he's describing the motivations of the heart. To be devoted to something and despise something, that's what the heart does. To love something and hate something, that's what the heart does. Jesus is deepening what he's already said, and he says, where your heart is, there your worship is, and you cannot worship multiple gods. You cannot worship God and mammon. What in the world is mammon? Well, Jesus says it's something you can worship. And as John Calvin said, indeed, our hearts are like perpetual idol factories. We can make anything into a God that we'll worship. Well, what is mammon? Well, mammon comes from the, uh, a Hebrew word that the root of it means to entrust. Okay? But over time, instead of the word meaning to entrust to someone, it started to mean that thing in which I trust. A reverse sense of the word. And so Jesus is saying... You cannot trust in God as your master and provider and entrust yourself and your security to something else. So the question in this last section is, who is your master that you give your heart to by entrusting yourself to? And then I would add, what is your worship that you give to that thing or that person? Because it should be pretty obvious. Right? I mean, wouldn't you agree that those who worship God and those who worship something else our lives should look rather different, right? So if you worship mammon or let's just say money, right? The person who does that saves and saves and saves and seeks to accumulate is only secure when they finally hit a, a level, right? Struggle is they don't seem to ever get there. Another approach that those who worship mammon take, they spend and they spend and they spend and they believe when I finally spent enough, it'll just be so awesome. I'll be so happy. And then it doesn't come and as a result, they probably give away very little because they need more just in case. Doesn't that look very different than one who would worship the God who provides all good gifts? Who trusts that God will in the end give us eternal riches? Who believes that God's forgiveness of our sin is satisfactory? So therefore, whatever we have, we want to responsibly steward it as an act of worship. I mean, shouldn't these lives look so opposite? And here's the trick and the challenge is sadly, oftentimes we can't tell who's who. Why is that? Well, let's go to the middle section, the warning. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you that comes in through your eyes is darkness, how great is the darkness? So Jesus goes from heart to eye, and he's not just changing the subject. What he's saying is what we look at that causes us to want something will indicate what kind of light or darkness is in us because we fixate on what we want to look at. But at the same time, whatever we look at is going to start to change 
whether there's light or darkness inside of us, for what we look at, we'll start to want what our hearts want as we begin to worship. So the question in this section, I would say, is what is your and my struggle that intrudes on this reality of supposedly having the treasure of the kingdom of Jesus be our hearts, everything. What's the intrusionary struggle? Well, it's this. Our eyes see too much. Our eyes just see so much. R.C. Sproul says that our eyes are the vista to the world. Let me ask you to ask yourself this question. Why do I keep looking at the material things I think I want, whether they're treasures or pleasures? It could be flesh. It could be wealth. Why do I keep looking at that thing? You know what Jesus' answer is? Because that's the thing your heart wants. That's what he's saying. And then your heart will take what you look at, twist up what God has given to us for his glory. Give an illustration. My eyes are bad. Very bad. I had to visit an optometrist this week, and, you know, that, that drill to see how much they've changed to get even worse. Does this help? Does this help? Does this help? Does this help? Can you imagine if my optometrist would have said, Jim, so what is it your eyes have been looking at this week? And how clear or fuzzy is your view of Jesus' kingdom as a result? You could do that, Hal. Can you imagine? Instead, the optometrist said, no, I want to make sure your eyes that look at the physical world can see most clearly. But if our eyes are supposed to be seeing the kingdom of Jesus clearly, the question we have to ask is, what are we looking at? The way that my eyes are bad is I have astigmatism. Here's my translation of that struggle. My eyes are complicated. Let me share with you why I use that word, because this text is saying to us that bad spiritual eyesight complicates our hearts. And it will never get simple if you keep looking upon things that make your heart dark while you seek to live in the kingdom of light. Verse 22, here's a little word study. Be a nerd for a second. The Bible says, if your eye is healthy, you see that word? Or if your eye is sound, that word comes from a Hebrew root and the Hebrew root means simple. All right, so track with me for a second. It's a word that, for whatever reason, the simplicity word has been translated in lots of places to mean generosity. So I'm taking you on a journey. Romans chapter 12, verse 8. The Bible says the one who contributes should contribute with generosity. That's the same word as the word sound. Okay? Or James 1, verse 5. If you lack wisdom, ask God who gives them to all men liberally. Same word. It's the word sound that we have here if your eye is sound. So other parts of the Bible use the same word to mean generous. Here's what James Montgomery Boyce says. He says, that's the sense of the word here. The healthy eye is the generous eye. So here's the question. Do you and I look at the world with an eye that is simple and content with all that God's provided to us? It's so simple. You're just looking for ways to use what he's given you. It's generous. Or does your and my eye create complication in our hearts the exact opposite of simplicity and generosity because we're so selfish and are unsure if we have enough Boyce asked the question this way do you see spiritual things clearly or is your vision of God and his will for your life clouded by spiritual cataracts 
or nearsightedness brought on by an unhealthy preoccupation with looking at things. Okay, I'm almost done, but I'm not done. We're going to turn to a conclusion. In fact, one of my children said to me this week, Dad, why do pastors sometimes just keep going? (laughs) Well, we're not done explaining. We need to apply it better. We just don't know how. I don't know. But even after I gave my explanation, this child said, why still, why don't you just stop? So this week, about Wednesday afternoon, his words were in my head and I just stopped. I stopped preparing a sermon. What are you looking at, Jim? And what is your heart being tempted to long for in a world of stuff? And so let's stop the sermon and transition into a couple-minute conclusion. I ask you, where is your heart? Why do you, your eyes keep looking at certain things? Are you using your eyes to complicatedly torment your heart and confuse your soul as to what you should truly treasure? Boyce asks it this way. Kind of his concluding question. Ask yourself this. Can anything be more insulting to God who's redeemed us from slavery to sin, who's put us in Christ, given us all things richly to enjoy? Can anything be more insulting than to take the name of God upon us, be called by his name, and then to demonstrate by every action and every decision of life that we actually serve money? We must stop and self-examine and repent and ask for wisdom. Kind of at the conclusion of his chapter on this text, Dan Doriani says it this way. It's kind of a diagnostic. He said, if an agent dragged you into court and accused you of loving Jesus, could your checkbook and credit cards be summoned as evidence against you? If auditors examined your finance, would they find proof of how much you love God? Do you give to God in worship with the resources he's entrusted you to serve with your life? Do you get giddy at secretly releasing things the way God's people did in 1 Chronicles 29? I think there's just a lot that we need to examine and repent of. So when we go to the route of repentance right before we take the Lord's Supper, we have to ask ourselves the question, what part of the gospel is in view here? Because also a little known secret in preaching, whenever you preach, probably shouldn't try to say, give the whole kitchen sink of the gospel. Like what part of the gospel? Is it the cross? Is it the resurrection? Is it the future? Is it judgment? Is it mercy? Is it righteousness? There's all these parts of the gospel. So what part of the gospel is in view if I stop talking in a moment that you must hear? Ready for this? How about the riches of the gospel? Listen to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. Paul says, I pray for the church. I give thanks for the church. And he says, I pray that the God of Jesus, the Father of glory, will give you a spirit of wisdom. And then having the eyes of your heart, think about the eyes of your heart enlightened, 
You may know what is the hope to which you've been called. What are the riches of the glorious inheritance for the saints? And what is the greatness of his power toward his children? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So Christian, I would ask you, do you know the riches of what's been given to us in Christ? Your sins fully forgiven, the righteousness of Jesus credited to you. A future where nothing will come to harm the goodness of the greatest gifts that God will give to us on a new heavens and a new earth. Do you value that as from God for you because he alone is the thing we should treasure? So as I close up, let's go back to the very beginning. What about your retirement and mine? What about your monthly cash flow as a family? What about your savings account? What about your house? What about your car or cars? What about that piece of dirt and property you've been entrusted? Do you believe and will you believe with those sitting next to you that all temporary riches are to be used as great resources in the kingdom of Jesus, but they make horrible masters of us and can be treated as a false God in such a way that we don't even believe in the God who gave the gift. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, Jeremiah says, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. Let's boast in the Lord together as we proclaim the gospel by taking the Lord's Supper but I encourage you to do it repentantly if anything starts to distract. Let me pray. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of you, our God. How unsearchable are your ways. The Bible says that for, from you and through you and to you are all things and to you alone belongs the glory. And so would we now rest in that and would we repentantly offer our worship to you? Would you give us creative joyous freedom to steward what you've been given in faith without fear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.